Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, for Book 3, Chapter 14 of Buddenbrooks. No going back now. Should the parents feel ashamed or proud? You know, I think what the general consensus on that prompt is going to be is quite obvious, but still, I've prompted. What do you think? I think they should be ashamed. I don't think they will be, but I think they should be. And that moment at the end where she was just basically said, like, you know, asked her dad if she was, if he was proud or whatever, was terribly sad. Swim said the mama for she says, I believe that what junior and wife are feeling is something like, well, that's settled. We've married off our daughter to a man of our class who can keep her in the style she is accustomed to and who should be helpful in business. At least her mother is a little interested if she will be happy. Junior is kind of slimy, shirking on the dowry, instructing Grunlich to avoid custom taxes, not telling Tony he's proud of her when she directly asks. He will be going first to shrug and say it's just... Sorry, he will be the first to shrug and say it's just business. The phrase, it's nothing personal, it's just business, was originally coined by Otto Berman, an accountant for organised crime in the US in the 1930s. There you go. Gwynardal says, I was really creeped out by the idea of Grunlich pulling Tony on his lap and rubbing his whiskers on her face as his only romantic gesture towards her. It's a very fatherly thing to do. It's even more sad with the end of the chapter and how seeing how badly Tony wants approval from her actual father. Jan Brunt says the whole chapter was emotionally grueling. I agree. Uh, his flourishing business was unrelenting in its demands on his personal attention, says Tekrific. It's a third-person remark, but we've seen examples of third-person narratives being unreliable before. I wonder how it reads in the original to a native speaker. Uh, paging Andy Brillen, can you shed some light on this? Is it not? Is it or is it not flourishing? That is the business at hand here. Maybe we've been duped in reverse. I don't really know why I believe he's not as prosperous as he claims, or has he claimed that? I'm confused. Yeah. <clears throat> that was the feeling I had too. Like, is he really so prosperous? Why does he? Why is he so interested in her? I think he's trying to get something out of her. Uh, I don't know what that would be. Um, but that's just how it feels. Wouldn't you say? So what was that? That was chapter 14. Wow. <clears throat> Alright, let me just find chapter 15. Um, there's 14. And 15. Alright, let's read the next one. See what happens. I'm wondering, you know, we're not far into this book. We're a quarter of the way into the book if that, maybe not even quite, and I'm already wondering, like, structurally, what the book is going to be, you know, who is the main character, is this a book about Tony and Grunlich, or <clears throat> is that just a, a, a minor part of the book so far, it's, it's moving at a, uh, I was going to say it's moving at a weird pace, but maybe I'm just comparing it to War and Peace because that was sort of the last one we read. But by one quarter of the way through War and Peace, there was so much that had happened 
even by this point, you know, one month in to War and Peace. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> I'm just rambling, really. Uh, but it, I think what I'm trying to say is it's it's some books you can kind of project the basic structure of them ahead of where you're up to after about this much. You know, you read a quarter of it and you can kind of feel like, okay, that was the first act, we're moving into the second act. But in this case, like, I'm not even really sure who the main character is yet, and that's a weird sensation. Here's chapter 15. Thomas Buddenbrook went down Meng Street as far as the five houses. He avoided Broad Street so as not to be accosted by acquaintances and obliged to greet them. With his hands deep in the big pockets of his warm, dark grey overcoat, he walked, sunk in thought over the hard, sparkling snow which crunched under his boots. He went his own way, and whither it led no one knew but himself. The sky was pale blue and clear, the air biting and crisp, a still severe, clear weather, with five degrees of frost in short, a matchless February day. Thomas walked down the five houses, crossed Baker's Alley, and went along a narrow cross street into Fisher's Lane. He followed the street which led down to the trave parallel to Meng Street for a few steps, and paused before a small house, a modest flower shop with a narrow door and dingy show window, where a few pots of onions stood on a pane of green glass. He went in, whereupon the bell above the door began to give tongue like a little watchdog, Within, before the counter, talking to the young saleswoman was a little fat elderly lady in a turkey shawl. She was choosing a pot of flowers, examining, smelling, criticising, chattering, and constantly obliged to wipe her mouth with her handkerchief. Thomas Buddenbrook greeted her politely and stepped to one side. She was a poor relation of the Langles, a good-natured and garrulous old maid who bore the name of one of the best families without herself belonging to their set. That is, she was not asked to the large dinners, but to the small coffee circles. <clears throat> she was known to almost all the world as Aunt Lotchen. She turned towards the door with her pot of flowers wrapped up in tissue paper under her arm, and Thomas, after greeting her again, said in an elevated voice to the shop girl, Give me a couple of roses, please, never mind the kind. Well, La France... Then, after Aunt Lotchen had shut the door behind her and gone away, he said in a lower voice, Put them away again, Anna. How are you, little Anna? Here I am, and I've come with a heavy heart. Anna wore a white apron over her simple black frock. She was wonderfully pretty, delicately built as a fawn. She had an almost Mongol type of face, somewhat prominent cheekbones, narrow black eyes full of soft gleam, and a pale yellow skin the like of which is rare anywhere. Her hands of the same tint were narrow and more beautiful than a shop girl's are wanted to be. She went behind the counter at the right end so that she could not be seen through the shop window. Thomas followed her on the outside of the counter and bending over kissed her on the lips and the eyes. You are quite frozen, poor boy, she said. Five degrees, said Tom. I didn't notice it. I felt so sad coming over. He sat down on the table, keeping her hand in his, and went on, Listen, Anna, we'll be sensible today, won't we? The time has come. Oh dear, she said miserably, and lifted her apron to her eyes. It had to happen sometime, Anna. No, don't weep. We were going to be reasonable, weren't we? 
What else is there to do? One has to bear such things. When? asked Anna, sobbing. Day after tomorrow. Oh God, no. Why tomorrow? A week longer. Five days. Please, oh please. Impossible, dear Anna. Everything is arranged and in order. They're expecting me in Amsterdam. I couldn't make it a day longer, no matter how much I wanted. And what is so far away? So far... Oh, sorry. And that is so far away. So far away. Amsterdam? Nonsense. That isn't far. We can always think of each other, can't we? And I'll write to you. You'll see. I'll write directly. I've got here when I get there. Do you remember, she said, a year and a half ago at the Rifle Club Fair? He interrupted her ardently. Do I remember? Yes. A year and a half ago I took you for an Italian. I bought a pink and put it in my buttonhole. I still have it. I am taking it with me to Amsterdam. What a heat. How hot and dusty it was on the meadow. Yes, you bought me a glass of lemonade from the next booth. I remember it like yesterday. Everything smelled of fatty cakes and people. But it was fine. We knew right away how we felt about each other. You wanted to take me on the carousel, but I couldn't go. I had to be in the shop. The old woman would have scolded. No, I know it wouldn't have done, Anna. She said softly and clearly, but that is the only thing I've refused you. He kissed her again, on the lips and the eyes. Adieu, darling, little Anna. We must begin to say goodbye. Oh, you will come back tomorrow? Yes, of course, and the day after tomorrow, early, if I can get away, but there is one thing I want to say to you, Anna. I'm going, after all, rather far away. Amsterdam is a long way off, and you are staying here, but don't throw yourself away, I tell you. She wept into her apron, holding it up with her free hand to her face. And you, and you... God knows, Anna, what will happen. One isn't young forever. You are a sensible girl. You have never said anything about marriage and that sort of thing. God forbid that I should ask such a thing of you. One is carried along, you see. If I live, I shall take over the business and make a good match. You see, I am open with you at parting, Anna. I wish you every happiness, darling, darling little Anna. But don't throw yourself away, do you hear? For you haven't done that with me, I swear it. It was warm in the shop. A moist scent of earth and flowers was in the air. Outside the winter sun was hurrying to its repose, and a pure, delicate sunset like one painted on porcelain beautified the sky across the river. People hurried past the window, their chins tucked into their turned-up collars. No one gave a glance into the corner of the little flower shop at the two who stood there saying their last farewells. That's the end of part three, by the way. We end with a little glimpse into Thomas Buddenbrook's life and his love life, by the looks of things. All right. That was a good little chapter. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.